Hey everybody, welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm joined as usual by Terry Fakes for another installment of our Difficult Texts series, which we've been having a lot of fun doing this, not just researching and recording these episodes, but also hearing your feedback on these, because we've certainly in the last few episodes, what happens when you die, election, uh, even to an extent, the rich man and, and Lazarus, dealing with issues that people have very strong opinions on and getting to dig through that and see people trot out different uh, arguments and historical understandings has been really, really good. It's led to some great conversations. And hopefully, as as we say a lot on here, the end goal is not that you would agree with our takes because none of these texts, or at least in some of the positions we're outlining, are gospel issues. These are interpretive issues. Uh, we hope that they right. spur on more Bible study, which I think it's I, I think is what's happening. So anyway, keep keep sending in opinions and your takes on these, and we're going to continue. Uh, we're we're getting more of these each week, so I don't know how long this series will go, but we're uh, growing <laughs> in the ones that people want to hear. So we're going to continue giving what we think are the kind of orthodox understandings and then what our takes are on each of these passages. And this is one that I had almost all but forgotten is a difficult text, although it's certainly the most difficult text in 1 Corinthians, one of the most difficult texts in the New Testament. Uh, it's one that you will absolutely do a double take when you read over it uh, at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. Now, here's an interesting thing. Most of these texts that we've done so far, I've either taught about or studied. I have an opinion coming in. This is one of those texts that I have never taught this. I've never gone over this verse uh, in a in a preaching or teaching mm -hmm. context, just because when you teach 1 Corinthians 15, there's so much other stuff that you're going to teach on that I did not come into this with a preconceived idea of what this passage meant. And that was part of the fun of studying and preparing for this was coming in with an open mind saying, I really don't know exactly what I think this verse means. Uh, and and it's kind of nice to come to a verse like that and then have to look at all the options and come up with something. Right. Exactly. Yeah, I did come into this with a, a preconceived idea of what it means. Uh, I kind of default to the plain sense of the text, but I admit that there are several, uh, two or three pretty interesting takes that are honest attempts to understand what is happening in this text. So it, it will be interesting to be aware of what those takes are. Well, the things to point out about this text, of course, we're talking about 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 29, which says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Like I said, you, you do a double take when you read that because you think, what? Wait, what? What is this yeah. even referring to people being baptized uh, on behalf of the dead? And I just want to point out a couple things before we get into the main section of this, which is trying to understand the context and the views. First of all, you read a text like this and and probably your antennas go up and say, there's something I need to do some research on here just because it doesn't, uh -huh. doesn't seem like something that I would expect. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, one of the technical commentaries on 1 Corinthians is written by a guy named Anthony Thistleton, who's a British scholar, and he counts 40 different explanations in surveying the commentary mm. work on this. So if you read this and you think that's odd, you are not alone because not only do people think it's odd, they really have a hard time figuring out what's going on. But the second thing, the more the deeper you get into this, and I think we'll show this in the next few minutes when we start to discuss the context, is 
The reason this text is difficult is actually not the reason you think it's difficult. Um, as we're going to show, right. what it says, although there are views that, that would disagree with this that we'll cover, that what it says, people are being baptized on behalf of the dead, if indeed that is what's happening, is not difficult. Uh, what's difficult is, why were people doing this? And then later, <laughs> yeah. which we'll talk about, this really, I think, is the difficult question of this text if in fact they were baptizing people on behalf of the dead, why didn't Paul tell them to stop doing that? <laughs> exactly. Uh, exactly. That is the hard part here. That That's the really difficult part of this text. It's kind of a argument from silence or an argument from omission, which is, okay, if that's the case, why doesn't Paul say more about this? And it's one of those cases where you wish you could ask Paul to elaborate a little bit on this question. So I think the place to begin here is we can't just take this totally out of context. We need to understand what is Paul talking about that would get him to this point where he would even mention this in the letter to the Corinthians, especially after this great passage on the resurrection from the dead. Uh, fill in a little bit of the context for us. Why, why might he even say something like this? Yes, the context of this chapter, basically, or at least this part of the chapter is he is, you know, the Corinthian church has a lot of issues. And one of the issues is that there were apparently some people who were saying that Christ wasn't raised from the dead. That's still true today. Like to, you might hear people say he was a really wise teacher and he's giving us a good way to live. But no, he didn't come back from the dead. In those days, if you took Plato's philosophy, which is how they all grew up, how all these Greek kids grew up. They believed that there was a, a spirit of some kind in you that might live on, but no, there's no way your body's going to be raised from the dead. There's no bodily resurrection. So when Christ died, his body died and decayed and whatever, but the spirit of Christ lives on. So it's not a, as crazy as it sounds that somebody might say, no, I don't really think Christ was raised from the dead. Well, that's not true, of course, and it's essential. And Paul spends a whole chapter talking about arguing for the fact that Christ was raised from the dead. Remember, he's going to say, if Christ isn't raised, our faith is in vain. In other words, this is the center of the idea of eternal life. So he's arguing against some of these other teachings that came from outside Christianity, and people probably brought them with them as they became Christians. And so he is mush, mustering arguments for, yes, he was raised from the dead. If he wasn't raised from the dead, your faith is in vain. And in this context, he's, this is just another argument. He says, if resurrection isn't a real thing, people, why are people baptized for the dead? And so he's merely using it as an illustration in a long chain of arguments that the resurrection is essential and you too will be resurrected from the dead. So it appears uh, as we look at it and go, whoa, that's a big point. To Paul, it's like, no, actually, that's just one of my little examples I was trying to use. So that's basically the context is this is a an example in the midst of a bigger argument. But of course, it captures our attention like, Paul, whoa, slow down. Tell us more about this. Well, it isn't really the point of what he's talking about. And right. so we only have what we have. Yeah, the two things I would add to this, just to give a bigger biblical perspective on 
this same topic that Paul uh, is talking about is if you remember in Acts chapter 17, Paul goes before the Areopagus and they're tracking, mm-hmm. they're tracking, they're tracking. And then all of a sudden he mentions the res- the bodily resurrection of the dead. And all of a sudden that's where everybody loses. Them. This is a very controversial point for him to make. And so you see you're, you've got people here that are much more like the Areopagus uh, than they are right. Paul's worldview who have become Christians. And so one of the beliefs that they brought with them, like you said, is, there is no resurrection from the dead. Um, now, this is something the Sadducees also believed, is that there is no resurrection from right. the dead. So when Paul is on trial, when he wants to pit the Pharisees and the Sadducees against each other, all he has to do is say, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm here on behalf of the resurrection of the dead. And then they can no longer <laughs> agree to fight Paul. Now they're out. fighting each other. Yeah. So this is right. controversial exactly. in the ancient world for a lot of different reasons. We shouldn't be surprised that there are people in Corinth who do not right. believe in resurrection, especially physical resurrection. Um, the right. interesting thing about this is you, the second the second point I want to make is you have to remember how 1 Corinthians is written. Uh, unlike some of his other letters like Ephesians, for example, where he's just laying out kind of doctrinal the doctrinal basis of the gospel and applying it to people's lives, in 1 Corinthians he has a – basically he has a list of questions from these different groups – that he is um, Mm -hmm. dealing with. And the way he does that is he'll say something like, we all have knowledge. Okay, he's not saying that. You can tell from the context he's saying that they're saying that, and then he's going to look at that claim in, in the light of biblical revelation and theology. The claim that he's looking at here is in verse 12. And so you have to go back there to figure out how he's arguing this in verse 12 he says now if christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead so like you said there's right. there's people saying people don't rise from the dead paul says okay right. well there, there's a big problem here if people don't rise from the dead then not even christ is raised from the dead and if christ isn't raised from the dead then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins because we're a resurrection-based right. religion then you get down to what Paul's effectively doing here is a counterexample. Nobody's raised from the dead. Well, you guys don't even believe that because if nobody's raised from the dead, then why are you guys baptizing people on behalf of the dead? <laughs> that right. just doesn't make sense at yeah. all. So right. this gets into it's a logical argument, and the premises make sense when they're combined. No one rises from the dead. Well, then why baptize on behalf of the dead? Ergo, People must rise from the dead. But is the premise true? People are baptizing from the <laughs> dead, ba- baptizing on behalf of the dead. And that's where the difficulty comes in this text is twofold. Is this what was happening? And there are some solutions that will say, no, this is not what was happening. And then in the second sense, if this is what was happening, Paul points that out to, to render their argument invalid. But why doesn't he say, and don't do that, by the way? Or baptism for the dead is something that you guys have done, so you clearly believe in the resurrection, but baptism for the dead doesn't work. It doesn't mean anything, so you shouldn't be doing that anyway. Why doesn't? Why isn't there an extra verse in here is kind of the other difficult part of this text. Now you kind of assume, this is the way we read this text, we assume that if you don't rebut something, you must believe in it. Uh, that's not my assumption here, nor is it the assumption of most scholars, is actually... Most people reading this text, most scholars reading this text, and this is my reading of this text, is Paul doesn't agree with this. He's simply using it as a counterexample. 
this is if he had stopped and said, and oh, by the way, about this baptizing the dead thing, I need to talk to you guys about that. I just think it would have interrupted the flow of his argument. I don't believe he approved of it for several reasons, which we can get into when we talk about what did the early church do and who was doing it, etc. So I don't believe that he was okay with it, but I don't believe he interrupts the flow of this argument to deal with the side issue. Yeah, that's what, the most prominent. That's the most prominent view of this text is yes, in fact, in Corinth, they were baptizing people on behalf of people who were dead. This is kind of a vicarious baptism or a baptism mm-hmm. by proxy uh, type argument. There are people who have died who either missed out or weren't able to get baptized or didn't know they needed to get baptized. And now that people do know that, they're saying, well, you know, my great uncle, before he died, he didn't realize he had to get baptized. So baptize me on his behalf, and then God will honor that baptism since he didn't have a chance to do it. That That's kind of the standard, plain meaning of this text. And then to your point, the problem there, or the downside with that, that is one of two things. First, why doesn't Paul say something about it? Well, the answer to that is mm-hmm. he doesn't have to say something to uh for for us to know that he doesn't agree with it we can read the rest of his writings and realize he does not agree with baptizing on behalf of the dead he doesn't have to refute it here uh to make like an implicit admission that he's okay with it uh but the second thing is okay if that's the case the historical question is were people actually ever doing this and right. was this actually ever a thing? Because if not, mm-hmm. then maybe we have to look and say, well, it wasn't that kind of vicarious baptism for the dead. There's some other options here. So there's a historical question here. Did anybody ever actually do this? And the evidence, I think, is pretty slim that this was going on. What do you think? Well, I do think that the church fathers have allusions to this, and you and I were talking about this, so I, you may want to emphasize this, but it appears that Epiphanius and Chrysostom, think 4th century AD, do mention this happening, but they mention it happening in splinter groups, Gnostic groups or Martianites, not the mainstream Christians. Uh, Tertullian, he's earlier, he's think around roughly 200 AD, does mention that this practice is happening, but does not approve of it. Uh, It appears that there's no evidence that any mainline Orthodox Christian belief, any of the apostles approved of this at all. And in fact, by 390 AD, this practice was forbidden by the Council of Carthage, meaning basically when I say forbidden, basically saying, guys, this is not biblical, you know, so don't don't be participating in it. So I think there was something happening here. I do not believe it was happening among mainline Christians who actually understood the gospel. What are you thinking on that? Yeah, I don't think there's any evidence that any Orthodox groups were doing this outside of maybe the church in Corinth, which is kind of the key example. Right. Uh, definitely there are some things wrong. Yeah, yeah there, there's a lot of unique things that are going on in the Corinthian church that we don't see anywhere else. So there are some mentions of Marcionite groups or maybe some Gnostic groups. Of course, once you invoke the Gnostics, uh, you get all kinds of other arguments that have to come along and be sorted out with that. But There may have been a few fringe groups doing this. The interesting thing is throughout Christian history, there have not been any 
major groups until the Mormons, actually, who practice a, a right. kind of version of this. Although I will say the Mormons do think that they are doing it because this text implies that you can do it, which is a very interesting right. argument. Uh, I think, as you'll see through these other takes that we talk about, that's not a very strong argument uh, because whatever is going on here, probably the least likely thing is it's happening and Paul is good with it. That that, that just right. seems a bridge too far. But th that, that is uh, a position that uh, the Mormons have adopted, and this does happen in some Mormon contexts. The other thing that's interesting about it is there's no evidence that this happened among pagan religions. So it's not like something that maybe the, because there are other places in right. Corinthians, the Corinthian letters, and some of Paul's other letters like Colossians, especially where maybe they're importing things that they used to do in these pagan right. cults, in their these pagan religions, religions yeah. that they have adopted and, and baptized, pun intended, into their Christian worship. And Paul's saying, no, 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 you can't do that anymore. That's not what we do. That's something that you used to do that we don't do anymore. There doesn't seem to be evidence for that either, that this was something brought into Christianity. It's almost like the Corinthians thought maybe this was a good thing to do. And mm -hmm. while they were mistaken about it, they actually were practicing this and Paul was aware of it. Again, that doesn't sound too odd for the Corinthians because they did a lot of things that are strange yeah. that nobody else is doing. Uh, they also thought it might be a good thing to do to boast about a guy who has taken his father's wife in chapter five. And Paul says, you yeah. should not do that. So <laughs> the, the Corinthians were yeah. innovative, not always in the best ways. So that maybe fits, but it is it is interesting that there aren't other examples of this happening in history. I agree. I, I think if it were widespread, we would know it. And so I don't think it's widespread. I think yeah, this is one of the interesting things to me. And I know you can go through maybe three views of looking at this, but I'll tell you why it doesn't bother me that Paul doesn't rebut this. Because stop and think about this for a second. You and I have done this. Everybody's done this. You come to somebody who's a new Christian. They are really doing things wrong. And you think, first of all, you don't believe that Christ was raised from the dead. That is a big problem. By the way, you're baptizing people for the dead. It's like, okay, we got to talk about this baptism for the dead, but we can't even start there yet. You've got a way bigger issue here. Baptizing people for the dead won't cost you your salvation. You're Ted dead wrong. But this resurrection thing, we have got to get this right. Uh, that's just the way I read it. It's like when you come into somebody that's got an awful lot of problems, you can't fix them all at once. You go to the salvific ones first. So that's what I read Paul doing here. So I don't really read anything into the fact that he doesn't overtly condemn it in this text. There have been some, though, that think that that's a defeater for this position sure. or the historical yeah. argument. And so that would lead us to say, what are the other options uh, for explaining this text? And there are basically two other options. They're similar in the sense that they both deny that there are people being vicariously baptized for the dead. There's something else happening here. So the first, the the other solutions, the first one, I would say are maybe verbal or syntactical solutions to this, where the words don't mean exactly what you think the words mean. And th this is very popular in the history of the church. I'll just run through 
four or five of these. And you'll hear the people that endorse these, there's some pretty big people in church history who have thought, well, maybe baptism isn't really water baptism or the dead aren't people that are dead. So you have people that say, maybe it's like a metaphorical baptism, like Mm -hmm. martyrdom, for example. That's what J.B. Lightfoot proposed. Maybe the preposition here on behalf of, which is the preposition who pair, it can mean on behalf of, but it can also just mean over, like spatially over. over. Uh, Martin Luther thought that maybe they were talking about people being baptized in graveyards or over a headstone or something to remember their death. It's like people married in their graves, remembering their death or something like that. Uh, Maybe it's for people close to death who convert who cannot actually physically get baptized, they have a proxy get baptized for them. That's what Calvin eventually thought. Uh, I'll point out, I don't think this one even works with Paul's own logic, because if you're trying to make an argument that these people implicitly believe in the resurrection of the dead, then saying that a person who's still alive, but almost dead, is having somebody else get baptized on their behalf, that doesn't really prove that they believe in the resurrection of the dead. But that was that was Calvin's argument. Maybe it's not dead people, but over death figuratively, some have argued. So with right. reference to the dead. So they see the martyrs, for example, and they want to get baptized with respect to them or with reverence to them. That's what Jonathan Edwards thought. Or the last one is maybe it's not somebody else's death, but their own death figuratively. They were baptized on behalf of death or their death, right? Uh, which is what Chrysostom thought, which is kind of that uh, buried with Christ in baptism, their own death, raised to walk in newness of life, a symbolic view. So all of these are united around the fact that somewhere, either the word baptism or the word on behalf of or the word dead doesn't quite mean what you think it means in this context. I don't find any of these arguments to be persuasive. But uh, I think the plain reading of the text is often the best way to read the text. Uh, But just to show how many different views there have been in church history for people that that thought, no, something doesn't mean what you think it means here. I agree. If if you think that Paul mentioning this and it was really happening meant that he approved of it, which I don't. But if you thought that, I can see why you would be driven because you know that he doesn't think it's okay. So you'd be driven to some kind of metaphorical way of understanding it. I prefer to take it the plain sense of the text. I just don't happen to think that the fact that he mentioned it means that he approves of it. Right. In fact, I would think that the body of the New Testament would indicate otherwise. And then you'd say, well, why didn't he mention it? Well, I've already told you. He's got bigger fish to fry at the moment. He's got way bigger issues to deal with. So, but I, I understand that if you think that he, the fact that he doesn't rebut it means he approves of it, you you need a metaphorical explanation. I just don't feel compelled to go there. I, I think they were doing it and they were wrong. And Paul's like, I'll get to that. When I come see you next time, we will we'll be putting an end to that or right. next letter I write. But first I got to deal with this resurrection thing. So the other the other position would be in the middle of these two. It it also deviates in the sense that this this position does not follow from the people actually baptizing on behalf of the dead. 
But it's also not quite a linguistic, oh, head fake, maybe this doesn't really mean baptism. This this would be one that Anthony right. Thistleton and others have advanced. This Basically, they, what they think is going on here is people who decide to get baptized because of those who have died. So this, right. this would be something like this. A person has a child or a parent or a friend or a spouse who has died. Paul comes in preaching resurrection. These people will be raised on the last day. And they essentially become Christians or they get baptized at least because they want yeah. to see their relatives who have died again. This is the way you would translate this passage. So Brian Rosner is one of the ones that talks about this in the Pillar Commentary series. He says you you effectively translate it like this. This is a little bit of an explanation or an amplification, but it, it shows you how you would read this verse if this is what you thought was going on. Mm -hmm. We would paraphrase the verse as follows. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will be accomplished by those who get baptized because of what they have heard about how our dead will be raised? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people undergoing baptism on account of them, on account of those yeah, who have died? Good point. So on in other words, if that's those, not true, since we're proclaiming resurrection, if that's not true, we're basically misleading these people. Is that kind of what he's saying? Well, he's he's providing the counterexample, which some of these other verbal ones don't they don't add up as the right. argument flows by saying if the dead are not raised, then getting baptized in the hope that you will see those who have died is a futile hope. So right. you're not getting right. baptized on their behalf, like your baptism applies to them. You're getting baptized and your baptism applies to you, but it's in the hope that you will be raised just like again. they will be raised and you'll be right. reunited with them. I think right. the strongest arguments for this position are one, it avoids the historical trouble of mm -hmm. whether or not this was really happening. Two, it sidesteps the whole, why doesn't Paul uh, say something against this? Right. Now, this is a little bit more technical. The third reason, and the people who argue for this point this out, the word for baptized here is in the Greek middle voice. And yeah. it's, I think it's always it's always a little tentative to make an argument based on the tense of a verb, especially because there are some big scholarly conversations about what the tense even means or what, what the what the voice even means. I mean, and so to say that it's in the middle voice sometimes means it's either reflexive or it's an action yeah. that maybe the subject and the object are both taking part in, although that's overly simplistic. But yeah. to preserve some meaning of the middle voice, it seems like the baptism should actually be on their own behalf, even though you have right. the preposition who pair afterwards. So you could construe it as saying the baptism has to be for them, not vicariously for somebody else. It has to be for them. But somehow the baptism for them has to be looking towards those who have died. Right. And this position On makes sense behalf. of that. If, right. if you read that verb that way, again, that's making a lot out of a grammatical point. But if you read the verb that yeah. way, this, this makes sense of that. The, but it is that, a grammatical point. I, I do acknowledge yeah. that is a grammatical point. It's, uh, it's not necessarily compelling, but that is a, that's a valid point. I think another thing about this view is it does it's it's true in the sense that this does happen. Uh, right. We know in church history there are instances that people write about this phenomenon happening. Uh, the equivalent for us, I, I think maybe some people do believe 
motivated by the fact that they want to see their loved ones again. There's nothing wrong with that along as, as long as it accompanies saving faith. But the equivalent might be you know, when a child is presented with the gospel in such a way that they don't really believe the gospel, they just don't want to go to hell. So yeah. because they're afraid of that, you have this kind of ancillary view of what saving faith is. That's, I think, what people are saying might be going on here is it's they're being be- baptized on behalf of someone. That's the main motivator. Mm-hmm. In which case, you might respond to this by saying, well, certainly Paul didn't agree with that either. And he doesn't say anything against that view. So that's kind of back to square one with not saying anything about the vicarious baptisms. So you yeah. can you could make that argument both ways if that's what you think is going on. I I think when we, when we get to our own takes about this, here's the thing that troubles me. I don't find the vicarious baptism thing all that compelling in the text, other than the fact that it is the plain reading of what this text says. If you knew nothing mm-hmm. about anything, if you'd never studied this, but you were a Greek speaker and you read this in its context or in its right. English context, but especially in its Greek context, you would think people are being baptized for people who have died, hoping that their baptism will count for them. That's just, It's just the plainest, yes. simplest. Plain sense of the text. Not necessarily it. right, but the plain sense of the text. Yeah. That's the Occam's razor approach. And so you punt on a textual understanding issue to a historical issue of was this ever actually even happening? I think that's the safest reading here. I think that Uh probably if you have to, if you have to go with one, I think that's, that's it. I like this other reading about being baptized for uh, the purpose of seeing those who have died because it makes, it makes pastoral sense. It, seems to have the ring of real life to it that people would actually be doing this, whereas it seems a little Mm -hmm. far-fetched that they just up and decided to get baptized on behalf of other people. Uh, But but here's the thing, and and this is why I would end up going with the vicarious baptism view that you're going with. I just think it's, it's contrived just enough that it doesn't have the ring of truth in the text. Now that's a subjective mm-hmm. opinion and we could get into more technical right. reasons, but I'm just saying sometimes you get too clever by half. And when you go right. back around, it just doesn't pass the common sense test of would anybody have read this text and thought that that's what's going on? Right. Sure. It makes sense. It adds up when you listen to the explanations, it seems like that could be plausible, but is it just a little too clever for this passage? That might be the case. Yeah, I think you and I are are kind of reading this the same way. But I don't think we can end this podcast, though, without one other question, Cole, is assuming that there were people doing this and assuming that Paul didn't agree and we don't agree. Why do we think that you shouldn't be baptized on behalf of dead people? Well, that's that's what a lot of the commentators spend time talking about, because that that's a good takeaway from this passage is does should baptism or could baptism count for somebody who has died? And I think the answer from Paul's letters is no. If you look at Paul's plain statements of what it takes to be saved, like Romans 10, 9 and 10, for example, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that he is the son of God, uh, you will be saved. You cannot do that if you are dead. Uh, there is, uh, you know, it's appointed for man to die once, and then comes the judgment. There doesn't seem to be any sense in Scripture 
that people have a chance after they're dead to choose Christ. So I'd say because of that, there's no way in which a baptism administered on behalf of someone else could save them. The other thing would be baptism doesn't save you. Baptism is part of uh, what's required of a person who believes. It's a commandment that we follow. It's part of being in the community of Christ. Some people talk about it as the entrance to the church, not necessarily specific church mm-hmm. membership per se, uh, although some churches require it for membership, but it's because they require people to be obedient for church membership, as opposed to there are certain Christian sects who believe, no, you are saved when you are baptized, and when you're baptized, you're saved. They are completely coterminous, right. uh, which I do not believe, uh, but, it, but it is an option out there. What do you think? What are the strongest yeah, think, reasons to refute it? Yeah, well, just the simple thing to me is this. We read the New Testament, I think clearly, that believers are baptized. Unbelievers are just taking a bath. So we believe in believers' baptism. It's not the power of the act of baptism. It is you're saved by grace through faith. Well, and I would say even for the Presbyterians who are listening here, which we we at So We Speak have a pretty broad tent, I, I, I think even a Presbyterian, although what we've advocated right now is believer's baptism, I think even a Presbyterian would believe with this in the sense that they believe a person is baptized as an entrance into the covenant community. Right. And you are baptized because your parents are Christians. They're going to raise you as a Christian because you're baptized. You are a member of the covenant community. But no Presbyterian believes that if you do not believe that your baptism as a child saves you. Nobody believes right. that. They believe that or, you are baptized in and you live up to your baptism, basically, by believing, right. either through confirmation, making your faith your own. Current saving faith is required, whether the baptism comes before or after. It's not a, you were baptized, therefore you're saved, now go do whatever you want, whether you believe or not, you're in. So I don't, I don't want to, on the one hand, marginalize uh, right. That's the, a good point. Because Presbyterians in the group. But at the same time, I don't think that there's a substantial difference on this particular no. point about what I, baptism I does. Yeah, I'm comfortable with the idea of people looking at baptism as a, a sign of covenant community. But even on that basis, you wouldn't baptize for the dead on behalf right. of the dead. The idea that the act of baptism actually saves you is not something uh, that we that is an orthodox belief, even if it even if it's done by someone else. <laughs> that would really that would really be something different is not only does it yeah. save you but it saves you if somebody else does it for you that has right. never been a christian position right thanks for listening to the so we speak podcast if you like what you hear go ahead and leave a comment leave a review email us tell us what you like about it tell us what you'd improve about it Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.